Hi, my name is Andre Gonawala. I'm the host of the Burn Bag podcast. And uh, this is the second episode in our new collaboration with the Climate Migration Council, uh, focusing on how we can reframe climate change as a national security risk, uh, with a particular emphasis on climate-driven uh, migration. Uh, last week, we spoke about how we wanted to view climate change through a homeland security perspective uh, with former Homeland Security Secretary Michael Shurdoff. Uh, today, we're going to be applying more of a defense lens to climate change, uh, and I'm happy to be joined by uh, retired Admiral, Admiral Scott Swift, uh, who served in the U.S. Navy, uh, and he also served as the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet from 2015 through 2018, and he also served as the director of the Navy staff in the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations. Uh, so, Admiral Swift, uh, thank you for joining me here today. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Andre. I, I very much appreciate it. So, Admiral, how do you interpret climate change as a national security risk? What are your perspectives? Uh, well, I very much appreciate the uh the question, and I very much appreciate uh, your focus on uh, climate climate change and and leveraging uh, the council as uh, as a mechanism to to explore it more fully. I'll, I'll pause for just a moment and point out the diversity on the council that everything from mayors to to prime ministers, but international leaders of of uh, consequential experience. Um, Secretaries of Defense, uh, you mentioned uh, Secretary Chertoff was was uh, on your podcast uh, last week. So um, I think uh, I won't speak for the entire group, but for me, that the council is an opportunity to, to uh, uh, bring a perspective that is to the heart of, of your first question. Um, and that is in, in my 40 some odd years of experience uh, in the military, I was very privileged in that the vast majority of my experience was operational, and all of that operational experience was either transiting through the Pacific, uh, operating in the Pacific, um, with uh, a fair amount of time spent in the Middle East as well. And I think many of these climate change issues are manifesting themselves uh, in the Pacific, especially among the specific island nations. Um, and it's not just uh, the, the melting of uh, the ice caps and the rise of uh, the sea level, um, but it's the change in ocean temperatures, is changing economics, and which drives changes to demographics as people begin to migrate because of the uncertainty and instability that occurs uh, as a result of that. Um, I, my interest is is actually uh, making sure that uh, the military is is uh, is is uh, a supporting role and isn't called on to, to play a direct role. Um, but that military perspective, if I spent a, a lot of time with military planning, which I think uh, applies to getting, getting after this, uh, uh, this challenge, and looking at it from an operational perspective, um, from that military perspective, it's, it's very important to make sure that you're using the resources you have, in this case, military resources, um, that you're not just treating the symptoms. Sometimes you do need to treat the symptoms, but you've got to get to the core issues. Uh, and one of my attraction to the council is this, the nexus between climate change and migration. And oftentimes we look at migration as the problem. The problem is climate change. And that's the trigger that causes migration, which is what uh, most people are uh, are aware of. So that that that's my first stab at, at your your question. I'll pause at that point because it 
I could go on for another hour on uh, the the details of it. Yeah. So, you know, in our email exchanges uh, before this interview, you mentioned a formula, security plus stability equals prosperity. Uh, Can you elaborate on how this applies to climate change and more specifically how it applies to uh, climate driven migration? Yeah, so I think it it uh, it applies across the board. Um, there's a, a a term of reference uh, called dime fill, diplomatic information, military, economic, financial, intelligence, and legal. Those are all different domains that um, it can be impacted by instability. And ultimately, what it comes down to is trust of citizens in their government. And and I'm going to back into this question as well. I, I use natural events that occur, uh, climatic events, cyclones and earthquakes. Oftentimes it's the military that responds, but it's always done under the auspices. Most often um, when we respond outside of our own U.S. borders, it's done through a request from the State Department that originates with the ambassadors of a given country. And the concept behind this is is to minimize the, the potential of citizens that are impacted within countries that don't have the resources that the military has so that they don't lose confidence in their own government, um, their own governance structure. And when we come in from a military perspective, we want to stay a step behind the the structures within the local government that are stepping forward to, to manage the problem set. They're the ones with the best ideas. They're the ones that know the greatest implications. And what the U.S. does is is come behind it with uh, with resources. As as climate change has continued to progress, you know, I can go back three or four uh, Indo-Pacific commanders. Admiral Locklear um, was someone that I, I worked for. He was the Indo-Pacific uh, commander, and he was asked during congressional testimony what uh, were some of his concerns as the commander in, in the broad region of the uh, Indo-PACOM, which as Admiral Harris, a previous commander, referred to it as Hollywood to Bollywood, penguins to polar bears. It's a huge area from the middle of the Indian Ocean to the west coast of the United States and from the North Pole to the South Pole. And Admiral Locklear commented at the time he was most concerned, one of his major concerns was climate change. And there was a lot of people that took issue with that, with all the other issues going on. The issues that we've been dealing with around the world, they're very consequential and they're very difficult to resolve, but they have in my mind, a manageable timeline. It's meant they're measured in years, sometimes in decades. But changes in climatology, it's it has taken a long time for them to fully manifest themselves to a level that people are starting to recognize the challenges that's associated with them. It's going to take an equally long time to resolve them. So I view the military role in this as providing resources but in what we refer to as a supported, a supporting role, not a supported role. You know, I, I see uh, uh, EPA as a as a critical partner that the military would support. Certainly, State Department from outside our borders, Bureau of Land Management. Something else we talked about is the importance of a whole of government um, effort to get after this problem set. That's why I refer to it not as a national defense issue which is clearly within the domain of the Department of Defense, but a national security issue, which is a whole of government and really beyond our borders uh, issue. So when you talk about the military having more of a supporting role with this, uh, does this necessarily mean that the DOD should be given or should not be given like a purview 
over, say, specific uh, climate-related tools to mitigate climate change? That is an excellent uh, question. I, I, I wish I was asked that question more often uh, in, in different venues. So the, the DOD should have a role, and that role is should be defined by the authorities that it's given by civilian authority. So those authorities really need to come from the administration, funded by Congress, ensuring that they comply with uh, the the Constitution and you know the legal structure that we have in place for the assignment of authorities to the military. We need to be make very clear that they're coming from um, uh, civilian institutions, from our c- civilian leadership, coming to SecDef out of the cabinet with uh, policy that drives them. And that allows a, a concerted collaborative effort uh, to get after this problem set. Otherwise, any entity in the government, we're talking about the military in this case, could actually be doing things that are counterproductive and not responding in ways that may be more consequential, that could be more productive to get after the the challenge of climate change. I guess, what are some examples of, uh, you know, some actions that would be counterproductive that you observed? Uh, so I think... Uh, the counterproductive piece is more of what's not done, opportunities lost. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of an action that that uh, DOD may have taken that was counterproductive. Um, there are we're very concerned. I'll I'll give you an example from a Navy perspective. We used to dump waste over the side. That was the the global standard, and I I'm uh, quite proud of the U.S. Navy stepping up and setting the example for other navies and, and other maritime civilian uh, shipping as well, um, that we process the vast majority of the waste created on a ship. Plastics is, is, a, is a big issue from an ocean's perspective. But we have uh, processing centers, regardless of how big the ship is, that, that, that crushes this, these plastics and, and uses heat um, to melt them down in the, into pucks that can be stored on board. That was a negative practice before that that we were negatively impacting the environment based on our activities. Um, there's a big a big effort um, to move away from fossil fuels of the military. Now this some is somewhat self-serving is because from a logistics perspective, uh, the longer your logistics chain and the more dense it needs to be to support operations, uh, the more vulnerable it becomes. So if we can reduce our dependency on fossil fuels, there's immediate advantage from uh, the resources available to the military. But the another major issue, obviously, is, of course, if we reduce fossil fuel uh, production, uh, we re- reduce the emissions as well that, that uh, we produce. So that's one point. The other point is, is that oftentimes the military may not be fully aware of efforts that it could be taking um, because of the nature of, of what our structure is. You know, as I mentioned before, that's coming from ambassadors. And I do think we need to continue our strength to strengthen our relationship with ambassadors in the region and make sure they are plugged into our, our military chains to allow us to act quickly um, where, where there's uh, humanitarian assistance or disaster relief that could be uh, provided. So you've had a nearly 40-year career in the U.S. Navy. You served as PAC fleet commander between 2015 and 2018. And I'd love to get your perspective and your sort of views on how the Navy 
and the broader military have observed, have interacted with, have engaged with climate change issues over those 40 years in your career? How has the views on climate change evolved, perhaps, as a sort of security threat within the military over your long career? How's it changed? I think the bigger, uh, for me, the impact was watching the impacts of uh, climate change at smaller scale and being able to extrapolate what would happen at a larger scale if it continues. So the, the Pacific Island nations, I mentioned that before, are very concerned about sea rise. And there are studies that indicate some of them may disappear in the next 30 to 40 years. So think how disruptive, when I talked about instability, think how destabilizing it is on that nation where those citizens become stateless. In global history, we've seen what happens when citizens become stateless. Oftentimes it's through war because we didn't have these insights of of global, global uh, of uh, uh, uh uh, environmental issues driving these changes, but the impact is the same. That's why I say if if there are if the conditions of instability exist or they continue to grow, it's very difficult to get to prosperity. If you look at the relationship between the United States and China right now, it's very it's it's more challenging for for uh, China to attract investors because they they're the situation, the economic situation is somewhat in, unstable, the relationship between the two, and people are un, unwilling to take the risk. Then it becomes a security issue from a whole of government perspective of how do we either regain and stabilize the situation um, or sustain the, the stabilized situation? I think where we are now with climate change, when I was early in my career, um, I was looking at uh, how do we uh keep the situation stable um the the increase in ocean temperatures is changing fishing stock and and fish migration and so uh, nations that rely on on fishing for their local economies are are now struggling these were things in the past that from a security perspective um, we could act to to uh, mitigate to stabilize the situation um now i i think to sustain the stability of the situation. Now where we are, I think um, we're in a position where we're trying to regain the stability. I think countries that, that um, have these best insights often because of their active engagement, New Zealand is one, Peru is another, Colombia is another. They're seeing this happening in real time uh, based on uh, the events they see occurring in the South Pacific. And I do want to, you know, focus a bit on that instability that you mentioned and flesh out that conversation a bit more. But, you know, while we're on the topic of uh, sort of the military and the Navy, uh, I was sort of curious because I myself uh, do some work with uh, some naval issues. How does climate change impact defense readiness and force posture? I, I don't think it's really affecting affecting readiness Uh I guess I would ask you to expand on that if there's areas that you think it may. I, I at, when when the the Navy began taking seriously its commitment to environmental stability um, and minimizing the impact of naval operations on the oceans and and in the air and under the sea, um, there were some voices out there that were suggesting this would be an impact to readiness. It absolutely hasn't been the case. We have a very active program. I'm most familiar along the west coast of the United States during the gray rail uh, migration um, uh, season. 
there are many ranges, maritime ranges along the West Coast that are critical to maintaining readiness. And some of the conditions and controls that we've put in place to minimize the impact of a whale strike, uh, people felt that it would would impact our, our ability to stay in readiness. It absolutely has not been the case. Well, you have to be aware of what's happening in the maritime environment around you. This is just an extension of that awareness. Before the awareness was focused on direct threats, other military threats, but it's it's the same learning skills that are involved when you're focused on environmental threats. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but sound propagation in a water column is critically important from an anti-submarine warfare perspective. And, and that sound propagation, understanding that environment can help us reduce the likelihood of a whale strike, of a, a U.S. naval vessel striking a whale. So I don't, I don't see it as an impact. I think it's something that actually can be managed to increase readiness of the force. Well, I guess uh, another question would be on sort of force posture, because you did mention a little bit about logistics, right? Like how, for example, switching from fossil fuels could potentially sort of shorten that logistics chain. Uh, would Do you see any threats from climate change to logistics supply chains? For example, ex- ability to ports or, you know, the ability to get, say, like food, sustenance, ammunition to, you know, naval vessels in the in the theater. Absolutely. So it's it's the uh, the shore to sea uh, connection from from the shore to a ship. And then most of our transfer uh, to the vessels is from supply ships to uh, uh, to the military vessels. But we source resources from ports around the world and Obviously, all of them are approximate to the current sea level. Many of them will, will have minor impacts uh, based on sea rise, um, but a, a significant number of them uh, will be impacted. I mean, if you look at, at uh, some of these huge logistics ports that um, the U.S. Navy and other navies use to sustain itself, um, that's a, they're put at a direct uh, risk from uh, from from climate change. So it's it's a very real concern. It's no different than what's happening in the commercial market. To come back to the broader issue, the commercial maritime industry is very concerned about this. Uh, so this is a common area that we can collaborate on, um, not one that we should be competing on. We need to, we need to come together and, and collaborate on those points. So I think, you know, one thing that I'm sort of curious about in actually getting action uh, on climate change is sort of how can we, re- we reframe uh, the fight against climate change, the fight for climate change mitigation, uh, similar to our thinking and our mindset uh, when we're mobilizing for a war? Uh, is there, c- could we have a similar mindset uh, for this topic? I do. I, I do think that we can have a similar mindset. And I, I appreciate that we've got the time to to chat about this a little bit. Um, I, I, uh, I I get uh, I'm a little concerned about making a connection to a war uh, war type footing to get after climate change because that that tends to put DoD in the lead and I feel strongly DoD as we talked about before should not in, be in the lead DoD should be a supporting entity to other uh, 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 more appropriate uh, departments within the U.S. government uh, for leadership. Um, but from a from a war fighting uh, perspective, using expanding on that that uh, uh, context, uh, I go back to centers of gravity is what we make sure that we're focused on the right things. You know, trying to to uh, uh, connecting the the reality of migration 
uh, and trying to curb migration because people are viewing migration as the disrupting entity. I think using a warfighting perspective and studying the problem more deeply, uh, from my experience, it rapidly came to the conclusion that it's it's the environmental change that's driving that migration. You have to get after the the the, uh, the environmental change that's driving it. You do have to address the migration issue because that's something that's happening in real time. Um, there are people that are suffering because of it, and it's very destabilizing to the regions that those those individuals are migrating to. Now, there's a, a study um, that was uh, released, uh, I think it was back in, in 21, I think it was out of the UN, that said 70, 57% of uh, these, these migration events that are triggered by climate are local or regional. Sometimes we think about we've got this big global problem. It is a big global problem, um, but they it is an amalgamation of multiple regional issues. And this comes back to the military piece: is that it's just not one solution. There's there may there's a there may be one solution for uh, region X, another solution for region Y. Um, I, I look at you know I, I grew up in California, and and uh, my son's a, a firefighter. Uh, so I'm, it's always interesting to me when I see in the news about California fires. I just saw yesterday that there's a major fire in Joshua Tree, which is unusual. Th this is an example. And there's a, an agreement that uh, between the California uh, state government that they can use the National Guard and military helos to, to bring water in to fight fires. There's a whole legal discussion that occurred before we do that. We have to be very careful about the use of military power within our borders. But that's an example that gets after your question that I think there can be a, a more collaboration, deeper collaboration between the DOD element and, and the whole of, whole of government uh, element. And it is, it does take, uh, I think, a more structured planning process. We tend to focus on the symptoms because that's easy. The symptoms are the things that we can see. It, it's the people. The people are not the problem. We can address the people problem forever and never get to the issue that is causing them to migrate. And on that California note, I noticed you went to San Diego State University. I myself am a native San Diego and grew up there all my life. So. I didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think in San Diego, we've certainly seen the effects of climate change really up front. I mean, with the fire skies that we've been seeing on the East Coast, that was a very familiar sight for me uh, growing up in San Diego. So, uh, you know, that's it's interesting. But, uh, you know, Admiral, what are well, let me let me let me take the, take a point there is, is to point out when you look at San Diego. I mean, I grew up there. My kids are there. Grandkids are there. We still have a house in, in San Diego. Think what a two foot rise in in the ocean would what it would have the economic impact just the economic just the economic impact and and this is not some theoretical piece this is based on science you know looking at the the change that has occurred over time look at the economic impact the number one industry in San Diego is not the military it's tourism. But conceivably, if if the bases, all the bases are, most of the bases are centered around the Bay, uh, uh, Miramar may be the, the one exception. If they have to move and the hotels have to move, look at the impact that has on the economy of California, just from a San Diego perspective. Now, take a country that's the size of San Diego. 
That's why we can't afford to just focus on our own national problem, which which is manageable when you take it in the broader context. We need to take a, a, a focus on what happens with these smaller uh, countries that these impacts are huge. It's 100% of the country's economy. Yeah, and, and I feel like a two-foot rise in the sea level in San Diego. My high school would probably be gone. It was in La Jolla. Uh, naval base Coronado, that runway may be underwater. Uh, a lot of changes would occur. Yeah, know, yeah. So, I mean, you know, when we're looking at how countries are addressing climate change and climate-driven migration, uh, what are the key challenges that you observe in how the world holistically is responding to these crises, but also how individual countries are responding? So, um, I think what, and one reason I was attracted to the council is I think we need a common voice that has a spectrum of diversity in it. We, as I mentioned, we've got leaders, the council has leaders from around the country from a, a spectrum of, of, of backgrounds. Um, when, when the U.S. government uh, responded uh, to the tsunami in uh, Banda Aceh, it was it was all symptom based. It was it was a make sure fresh water is critically important as an initial resource. An aircraft carrier um, makes over two hundred thousand gallons of fresh water every day. So bringing an aircraft carrier into a situation like that is critically important because of all the fresh water it can provide, and that's critical to reducing the spread of disease, cholera in particular. But once that event was taken care of, we moved on. Um, the Navy responded to a more recent event was the Great Eastern Earthquake, the tsunami in Japan. Now, these are earthquake-based events, so you can't, I'm, I'm not equating them to this, the climatic changes that are uh, occurring. But what I see in answer to your question is a, a response to each one of these issues as if it's unique. We need to separate the unique ones, like the earthquakes from the climatic ones. And it's just a question of science. This is physics. And and where the uh, uh, the issues are climatic in nature, we granted their local issues, but we need to take those local issues and work with a local population and the leadership there and expand that out to say, this is much broader than country X, Y, or Z. This is an amalgam of countries X, Y, and Z to include the United States. We just had the conversation on uh, on uh, on San Diego. Yeah. So I think one thing that you had mentioned in some of our communications before this podcast was that you know some countries may be looking at this from a lowest common denominator perspective. And I'd love to sort of get your take on, you know, what are some examples of this in play that you have observed that have played out? And then, you know, your take on whether governments and policymakers actually understand the impacts of climate change, whether, you know, when these disasters, when these crises happen, do they actually understand that this is rooted in climate-related uh, issues? So it, it's, uh, I, would come at, I would come at that question um, uh, uh, this way. When I, when I refer to lowest common denominator, oftentimes it's the small countries whose impact is, is most highlighted. Uh, you know, the fires eat, well, some, it's a bad example because it, it, people didn't realize the impact on it. But the fires that occurred uh, three or four years ago in Malaysia had a huge environmental impact across, across the region. Um, but it wasn't looked at as a global 
uh, perspective. That's what I mean with the lowest common denominator is too oftentimes nations look at other nations. If, if Palau has a problem or Fiji has a problem with the ri ocean rising, it tends to be diminished. That's, that's used as the lowest common denominator. And then when those from you know rich, well-resourced countries like the United States are called on to help resource either studies or actually actions to get after uh, the core issues of climate change, Oftentimes, the, an argument is made that, well, why should we be investing more than some of these lowest common denominators, these smaller countries? It is much more consequential to us broadly because we rely on those countries. That's why I, I talk about security for security's sake has, has little value, but applying security to either sustain stability or reestablish stability ensures the, pro the, the uh, prosperity of, of the world, not just a region. So I think it's incumbent upon us as the United States to set aside this argument to say, why should we invest so much when country X, Y, and Z are, are only uh, investing a smaller amount? Even if you're using GDP as an example of, of what the percentage of investments are, it is in our own self-interest to look at this climate change problem as a global issue. And we should be investing globally to manage the problem because it's coming home to us. It's coming to home to us every day. And now you're seeing from a heat perspective, a temperature rise, the rise in the oceans. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm here in New England right now and we've had migrations of white sharks up into the Cape Cod area. Um, the fish stock has changed completely. This was something that was true in the, in the South Pacific that those nations there recognize it. You know, my, my brother-in-law is, is a fisherman. He's, he's seeing it in his business as well. So it, it has consequential changes. It's, it, what you see happening in one region or locally in the world, it has, you have to consider it in a, in a scientific way to extrapolate it to your own position and say, we have to make broader investments. We can't just take this lower, lowest common don, uh, denominator approach. Yeah. And, you know, my next question may, be, may sound a bit cynical, but I feel like it re reflects the views of many folks in the younger generations, millennials and Gen Z. Is there an intentional misappropriation of some of these impacts to uh, non-climate related troubles, as in are people intentionally ignoring uh, climate change? How would you sort of respond to, you know, say a young person who may have that view? That, that the climate change isn't something that we should be investing on managing? No, that I guess that I guess that like, you know, folks in power, uh, policymakers may not believe that climate change is real or that they're intentionally <laughs> misattributing uh, things to non-climate related issues. I mean, you know, the, the big the bane of uh, the climate change yeah. debate, I yeah. guess. Uh, and yeah. it's caused a lot of young folks to be very cynical, right, about like, whether policymakers, whether governments will actually address climate change before you really feel some of the most severe impacts, what many nations are already feeling the most severe impacts, uh, as we've talked about. So I'd love to sort of get, you know, your view, uh, your response to that, because I feel like it's a burning question a lot of people have. It's a concern I have. One of the things we talked about was my view is that real change wouldn't happen um, within the United States and potentially other countries without a Pearl Harbor moment. And I don't think that Pearl Harbor moment is concerned. We should be listening, not just to young people, but to anybody that expresses frustration that not enough is being done. There's a really interesting study. I, I, I just read it yesterday uh, that reflected on uh, young people's uh, voting uh, patterns. 
And in the last election, that voting pattern was driven by their concerns over cynicism, not their own. It wasn't their own cynicism. It's what they were seeing in the dialogue that's coming out of the centers of of power of government. And it's not localized to the United States that this is this is broadly. Uh, So I think we absolutely have to wake up. I would encourage those that feel not enough is being done to speak out more often. They they should be educated. They should uh, speak and not from emotion, but from the perspective of science to say this is really happening. This is their future. You know, I'm I'm 65, 66 years old now. I've got to deal with this for another 15 or 20 years. They're going to have to be deleted dealing with this for another 60 years. So we absolutely should be listening to those that are going to, it's not that they're going to inherit the problem. It is their problem now. So I would encourage them to speak out, speak to those in power and to vote, not just within the United States, but vote, you know, broadly, globally uh, on uh, with respect to what their concerns are that they feel are not being addressed in particular with climate change. I I go back to the Climate Migration Council. That's one of the reasons when uh, I was asked if I was interested in joining. I think old folks like me that have been in government, you just had the secretary on on your last podcast, uh, 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 Secretary Panetta uh, led the CIA, he led DOD, he's part of the uh, Climate Migration Council. I mean, if you go to the website and look at the members of the council, they share this view and this concern. It's a critically important point. We should be in, encouraging those that feel that they're voiceless or their voices aren't being heard to speak up. It's a venue that the Climate Migration uh, Council is is focused on um, accentuating. So on uh, climate migration, climate-driven migration, how severe do you think this crisis is going to get in the coming years and decades? I, my uh, My fear is based on uncertainty. I can't imagine what the scope and scale of it is. These the the analogies from a, a warfighter's perspective. You know, I look at the challenges of migration out of the Middle East. Look at the migrations out of out of Syria. Pick a country in Europe, any country, and you can have a deep discussion about how destabilizing that migration is to that country's governance. I mean, look at Germany, a, a well structured government, and and look how difficult it is for the political leaders uh, to address this issue of, of these migrants that have come into journey. Look at our own situation, which isn't war driven, but the, the, the situation both on our southern border and northern border, a lot of that migration is driven by climate and, and uncertainty. You know, the, the structures of, of the governance in, in Central and South America are being stretched um, because the traditional sources of income are, are, uh, are, are changing. Um, so I don't I don't know I I am concerned because it's not measurable. It goes back to your last question. Uh, people feel that they can slow roll this, that this isn't a, a problem that's front and center. I'm not saying that this should be the primary issue that our, our politicians should focus on as the number one issue day in and day out. But it ought to be a number one issue on their weekly schedule of things to focus on. This is going to take a long term solution. And I know I can I can see what the trajectory is, but I, I don't see what's going to turn down this trajectory of migration. When you look at these climatic impacts that are occurring, people are going to move based on their own self-need. 
if I could, can I just add one more point to that? The, uh, the, the other point I'll make is oftentimes that the destabilizing effect of migration is looked at as war, such as in Syria. You have to also understand that the destabilizing environmental effects that were there already, water security. Another Secretary of Defense, Secretary Perry, when, when, when he left as Secretary of Defense, he's at Stanford, his whole focus since the time he left the, uh, the Defense Department as the Secretary of Defense has been on water security. He, he invested himself in understanding that the uncertainty of water security would drive people to migrate, would destabilize governments. That, that instability was there already in Syria. I'm curious, I'd be interested to see a study I wouldn't be surprised if war was was one of the triggers that exacerbated the sense of of a population of saying we need to move that this we can't sustain our our family and our culture here within Syria because of these environmental issues that the war fighting destabilizes further and they start to migrate that this this problem is very very complicated which I think has driven people to ignore it um, at our own peril. Now is the time to recognize it's complicated, accept it as an issue, study it, and stop this this senseless dialogue that suggests we can pause. It's not critical. It's not man-made. Whether it's man-made or not is immaterial in my mind. It's material only in the fact of how do we reverse it. If it's man-made, that's wonderful because we can reverse it if it's man-made. But how much of it is not man-made is a concern as well because that's even harder to reverse. No, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're talking about the destabilizing uh, effects of climate change in these countries that are facing, you know, these natural disasters and these crises, countries that are running out of water. And then you're also talking about the destabilizing effects of the migration uh, on countries that are receiving the migrants, you know, wherever they are. And that sort of raises the question about, you know, our rules-based international order. I mean, think one thing that myself and Secretary Shardoff addressed uh, in the last episode was about, you know, sharing the burden between different countries. Some countries may be more overburdened uh, than other countries. Uh, is our rules-based international order, as it is right now, equipped uh, to handle this looming crisis, a crisis that's already happening in many parts of the world? Yeah, I, I'm a little hesitant to go into that space. I spent a lot of time talking about the stress that the international rules-based order is under. Um, I think that a, a lot of the tension um, between the United States and and the PRC and and some other countries is is some countries are are recognizing that the current so the current international rules-based order. At, at its core is based on discourse and dialogue. It recognizes that frictions are going to occur between nations on the international stage. And it, it dictates that discourse and dialogue are the vehicles between those individual countries to, to resolve those frictions. If they are unable to resolve those frictions, then there's a, a spectrum of international courts and councils that have been established, more than 25, to resolve those differences, UNCLOS comes to my mind just as a naval practitioner, and um, that was turned to as a court to resolve the, the territorial changes between China and many of the countries in the East and, and South China Sea. Uh, the challenge is some of those countries, because they, they don't agree with the rules associated with the international order, I guess I should add that there is a mechanism to change those rules, that those rules were established at the end of World War II 
in a number of conventions, the Pacific mainly focused on the San Francisco Convention of 1951. That convention, those conventions were smart enough to recognize that the rules would have to change over time. So there were there were mechanisms to set in place courts that you could take these arguments that the rules didn't apply anymore and should be changed, again, through discourse and dialogue. There are people that feel, nations that feel they've been disenfranchised and their voices are not being heard, that 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 rules-based system is being run by liberal democracies. Um, they, unfortunately, in my opinion, have turned a force and coercion away from discourse and dialogue. With that as a background, back to your question. I think the current rules-based system is critical to addressing climate change. It has to be done through discourse and dialogue, not through force and coercion. That's why I'm so active in this space through the Migration Council. If we don't get this right, through discourse and dialogue, led by our civilian leadership, not the military, then uh, when discourse, dialogue, and diplomacy fails, then we turn to the military. We turn to the military to reestablish uh, security through force and coercion. The military doesn't build anything when, it, when you turn to it to solve a, a broader problem. It destroys things. Look at what's happening in Ukraine, as an example. It's horrific. That is not a solution. Now we can use military sources, resources, to help mitigate these vectors of instability as long as it's done through civilian leadership. This is what you know. I mentioned in, in one of our email exchanges about the national security strategy, that it's absolutely critical that climate change be addressed in our national security strategy. It provides a framework to pull all those elements of the whole of government together so we can work together in a collaborative, cooperative way. And I'd love for you to sort of flesh out a little bit about what a national strategy on climate would look like uh, through that whole of government approach. Is this sort of like a like a national security council uh, for climate issues, or is this sort of like a cabinet level meeting that's just solely dedicated towards climate issues? Like, how do we get people in government to actually talk to each other? So, um, I'd spent a lot of time in my career. Uh, so I, I think the first thing is you have to develop a strategic vision. You know, that's and it's up to the administration, whoever the administration is, to develop that strategic vision. And that strategic vision is is shaped in a couple of ways. It, it can be in a positive of where we want to go or in a, in a more nuanced way, a negative of where we want to move from. And I would suggest it's more a negative that that to build that vision, it needs to be a collaborative effort across whole of government, you know, both mainly the administration and and uh, and Congress, to say that we can't continue to admire the problem. We need to move forward. So the vision is is that we're going to move forward together. Beneath that, there needs to be an operational framework, and this needs to be all part of the strategy. Too oftentimes, the strategy is is a visionary document, but it doesn't have the structure, the framework, you know, the little boxes in it that says DOD is going to do this, Department of Energy is going to do that, State Department is going to do this, you know, all those 15 different um, cabinet level departments in, in the administration, every one of them should have a role to play and should be given a specific task. And that's policy is what defines that. So, Department X is going to be in the lead or the co-chair or these three co-chairs on climate change. That provides that provides structure and guidance that that's at, at what I call the operational level. 
And from that guidance and those actions, that that these are the areas that the not what they're going to do, but why the first is to focus not on what to do, which is what we tend to do as as Americans, which is one of our strengths. But the first is we need to talk about why we need to do it. That's the first step of a national security strategy. The next step is how. That's the resources. The last step is so how is resourcing it and studying it. So we can dis- discuss about discuss what are the things that we should need to do, and the last piece is that what a, of all those what's which ones are we going to implement? But we as Americans we almost always go to the what. Well, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Well, we need to explain to people how we're going to do that. Is it resourced? Many times in government we say we're going to do something and then we don't resource it, or we give the task to. Uh, Department of Energy, and then we don't resource them, or State Department, and then we don't resource them. But what's most important is the why. We need to come together on the why, and that's where you get the cohesiveness. That's where you get the collaboration that occurs, you know, across the U.S. government and across our borders. Climate change has no respect for borders. You know, it's this, it's the globe that we're on. So there's, that's that's my pitch on the national security strategy, it, that we should be talking about why this is important, what, if we're talking about climate change, that it's part of the national security department, uh, uh, strategy, why it's important to the, the security of the United States, um, how we're going to get after this, you know, that, that uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to go fund it, we're going to put money to it, we're going to focus on it. And then we get to what is it that we're going to do? That's the last thing that we get to. Absolutely. And I think there's sometimes there's a tendency in government to focus on the what before you actually dissect the why. It's the easiest thing to do. In my military experience, we love crisis. If it's a crisis, you knew exactly what to do. I mentioned earlier, my son's a firefighter. He doesn't want to spend any of his time fighting fires. He wants to spend all of his time preventing fires. If you, I'll bet you had 90% of his time as a fireman is spent on fire safety, on education. It's, and why is it important? People, people, you know, he didn't want people to die. You know, he sees that. It's not about the insurance rates. That's a side benefit. That's the why. The how you get after it is the education piece and the training piece. You mentioned the readiness piece. He has to be ready to fight a fire. But the feeling is of, of his fire department is if, he's, if they're rolling to a fire, failure has occurred. That's why they do such a research on on the fire piece, especially if someone dies. Where did they have access to education and, and didn't take it, or did they not? Were they disadvantaged and didn't have access to education? That model should be applied to climate change. Yeah, and certainly, you know, climate change knows no borders. And I'd love to sort of get your take on uh, who you would see as sort of the key international partners in this fight. Of course, uh, our neighboring. Uh, countries, uh, but also like who are some of those unconventional international partners that you would observe that we wouldn't necessarily expect in the general public? Well, I think I go back to the the Climate Migration Council. I would I would suggest you go to the website and take a look at the membership there. And many of them are from these countries that are uh, impacted just as much as the United States is by climate change, but because they're smaller. The impacts are, are much more consequential from a societal perspective, from an economic perspective, from a humanitarian perspective, from an environmental perspective. Um, so those that are most Im- impacted, uh, we should we should team with. I I I don't I, I, I'm a little hesitant to call out what organizations. I think 
Um, certainly the UN is one. You you look at the work uh, uh, that um, some folks are are doing independently within organizations across borders that are having a uh, a consequential uh, impact. Um, I think the EU, the UN, um, the uh, uh, organization of uh, South American states. There's 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 a plethora of organizations to engage with. I don't think we should be respect uh, should should be. Uh, uh, focused on which one of them we should in, engage in. Uh, you know, the, the UN has uh, uh, certainly auspices and capability here, but we've got to make it real. You know, you go back to uh, the comment you had about the younger generation uh, being skeptical of movement. There's a lot of people that are skeptical of, of the UN. It is a consensus building uh, organization, but we have to start moving forward. I think they're, part of that strategic vision should be we've got to get to a point um, that we're moving beyond the dialogue of is there a problem to a point of recognizing um, that, yes, it's a challenge we have to embrace, and why is it important? It's back to that why piece. I, I think the EU is key. I think the UN is key. Um, there's a number of, of uh, ASEAN is, is, a, is an organization potentially to engage in. Um, so there's multiple organizations out there. It's it's how can you generate a critical footprint to drive change? Absolutely. Admiral, before we wrap up the interview, do you have any final thoughts, uh, comments, uh, things you want to share with our audience? So I would say start small. Uh, and as well, first of all, I want to thank those that are, thank you that you're, you're doing this podcast. Um, thank those loyal listeners that you have and encourage them to highlight this podcast for others to listen to. And the message is simply this, start at home, start at home with, with recycling. There's an interesting article in the New York times um, that we're not doing recycling right in, in the United States. Um, so start at home, educate yourself about what you can do and then become an advocate for yourself. This is, this is your future. I mean, you have to take ownership of it. And if you become an advocate for yourself, that advocacy comes to what you can do locally, um, what you can do regionally, either through direct action or participating in organizations or simply voting. And every little step that you take in a, in a positive direction, you should advertise it. You should advertise it to your family. You should advertise it to your, uh, advocate is a better term, advocate it to your family advocate it to your community. This has to start and continue at the grassroots level. So to the point that we discussed earlier, waiting for the government to take control of this and manage it in a positive way, the, the fastest way to get there is to force it from the ground level up. And I go back to the Climate Migration Council as, as an organization. There's many of them that are uh, uh, like that out there. Affiliate yourself with one of, to one of these consequential organizations and make a difference with yourself locally. Admiral Swift, thank you so much for joining me here today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much, Andre, for all that you do across all your podcasts. I must admit, until I received the uh, invitation, I wasn't aware of your work. It, it's stunning. It's not just about climate. So anybody listening to this, you should go to the website and take a look at the podcast that Andre's produced. It's uh, It gives me hope. It gives me hope for where we are and where we're going. Thank you. 